We have a, a lot to cover today. Our brother Ken is not here this morning with us, and um, so I'm just going to kind of fill in and do what he does. What does he do anyways? I usually step in the back. He says, hi. <laughs> he says, good morning. Welcome to North Park Church. Uh, he prays over the offering. That's right. And if you'd like to leave a gift, there's, there's a box back there. Some of you are probably familiar with our uh, Tithely app that comes up uh, from time to time. And uh, Tithely.ly, L-Y, I think. But anyways, you, you punch it in, in, your, uh, in your phone as a, um, an app and look for it. You'll find us, North Park Baptist Church, and you can give online if you'd like. So that's dependent upon you. But let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Father in heaven, thank you once again for uh, just this time that you give us to go through this book of Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, for just the truths that we've learned so far and just all that you're doing and you will continue to do. Lord, we, we do come before you recognizing that more than anything else, um, we owe it all to you. It's not because of our own wisdom. It's not because of our own uh, abilities. It's not because of what we've acquired. It's not because of what we've done. It's all because of what you've done. It's all been taken care of. It's been taken care of on the cross. So help us, Father, to understand and learn that. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we just lift up your name, and we lift up those that are in need of prayer. Uh, I do pray for Jan this week as she's going in for surgery. Lord, I just pray that all things work out well. We lift up to you, Terry. We thank you for her life, and uh, we pray, God, that you just continue to heal her, and uh, you bring her back to us, Lord, so that we can worship together. We pray for... Uh, for Manny and for Lucille, and, and Lord, I thank you for, for bringing them uh, uh, to the point of healing in their life. We lift up to you, Joan, that often uh, receives the message online, and, and for Marcella and Ralphie, Lord, we just thank you for the miracle that you've given him in a new liver and, uh, and being able to, to function now in a, in a different light, and we know that he's still susceptible to any type of virus that is out there, so Father, keep him safe, keep him healthy, and keep him going in the right direction. Lord, we do pray for uh, each individual that is here. I thank you for James and, and his life and uh, for Winter, Lord. I know that she's struggling still with this, the procedures that she's been going through. But God, we just know that uh, all these petitions that we bring up to you are in your hands. And I thank you that uh, both James and Winter are trusting in you and recognize that you are still the, the author and the creator of all life, Lord. So we just thank you for that. For those that have lost loved ones in the past, uh, we lift them up to you for the families. And uh, Lord, as we, as we gather closer to the holidays, those that uh, are no longer with us, are, are gonna, it's, there's going to be a hole in our heart and there's going to be a, a huge uh, just uh, grief. And uh, it's going to be tough, Lord. I just pray for each one. So, Lord, thank you once again for the gift of life that you've given us with our new grandson. I pray for my daughter and, uh, and also for William, our new grandson. Lord, I just thank you for that. And I just pray for my wife as well, uh, that you strengthen her. So, Lord, this morning, uh, lead us in all goodness and in all faith and, and, uh, in, in your word that is true. And, Father, we, we've read your word. And uh, it makes us feel good and it gives us conviction. But uh, we're not here just to sing songs. Uh, you, we, we praise you and we love you. Your, your love does make us sing, but it should make us do even more so. When we recognize just uh, how deep that love is. And, and Lord, we've been going over this. So now it's time to put it into practice. Let our, our walk match our talk. Let's, let's get going with this, Lord. And I pray you give us the, the wisdom to do so. So thank you, Father. Lead us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen. All right. Now, if you've been with us since, uh, well, you know, for some time now, I believe we started this book in July, the last couple of, couple of days of July. 
When we started the book of Ephesians, I mentioned to you that we had put a title on this. And there are a lot of commentators that call it the same thing. They call it God's checkbook or bank book. Uh, some people call it the riches of God's grace. That's what we ended up calling it. Some call it the church and being formed from eternity past. I'll go over that a little bit in just a bit in here just a bit. So the book of Ephesians is a book that Paul wrote and he wrote it while he was in prison. And he wrote it after reflecting back on his life. He's already gone throughout the whole empire that, that he can get to. He's planted churches in various places. And uh, he was talking about how each person is to uh, be, be grafted into the family of God. Now, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp that. And maybe not for some of you, especially with those of you that have uh, come from the wrong side of the tracks or are not part of the elite group or have not yet been uh, made of the, the main church or the main organization, I guess you would say. But what God has been doing from the very beginning, he started, and we found this in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that from the foundations of the world, you have been chosen. You have been elected. And uh, if we go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's amazing. And how some people would come up to me and ask me, have you received the second blessing? I go, what? You mean you guys only get two? I mean, I got them all. I got all the blessings that God. He's promised it right here. Every spiritual, every spirit. I don't just get one or two. I get them all. And you do too, beloved. Because here, look at this. In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, and he goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. From the very beginning, God says, I'm going to build me a foundational church, a church that is my body. That's the body of, of Christ. Christ is going to be the head of it. From the very beginning, he says, this is what I'm going to do. This is not an afterthought. This is not something that took place. Well, you know, since the Jewish people messed up, now I got to get the Gentiles involved. From the very beginning, God's plan was to make from two one man. We saw that in chapter three, the mystery of the gospel revealed. But before we get there, Paul had already been talking about how this has all come to fruition and how God had been working on it from the very beginning, from the very foundations of the world. Beloved, that blows my mind because I know who I am. I know what I've done. And it really just blows my mind that he would choose me. I know some of you guys, and it blows my mind that he chooses you. (laughs) It chooses all of those that are his. He chose you from the very beginning. And, and the evidence of that, and it's interesting because I've been talking to my grandson about this, and he's only eight years old, and, and, and so we're talking about election and how God adopted us and, and how all these things happen. And he asked a very, very important question. And this is the question that most, it's, it's a strong indicator, not saying that it is true in most, pe- in most cases, but he asked the question that most people that have been chosen, that have been elected, that have been predestined, that have been adopted into the, the body of Christ, they asked this, am I? I, one of those, you know, because every, every once in a while, those that are chosen, we do some stupid things. We do some crazy things. I can't be, you know, but, but he promised it. And, and, and am I one of those? And my response always is to a child as well as to you. Does your heart lean toward God? Do you want to please God? 
Do you want to, do you desire God? Do you desire to confess every time you ask that question, am I one of those? Because one of the reasons we ask that question is because we've done something that has compromised our faith, compromised our testimony, has compromised who we are. And we're not perfect. And it's not a matter of perfection, beloved. It's a matter of direction. Where are you going? You see, a person that is not chosen or, or is not adopted or is not predestined or is not even in the body of Christ, he could care less. Yeah, well, whatever, you know. I'm sure God will forgive me when I get there. I'm just going to go this direction because my direction is going in that direction. And I'm going to perfect that direction. And people, the perfection in that direction is what some people do. We talked about this last week on how people are not worried about the, ins the inside. We're more concerned about the outside. And Paul has laid it out. Look, you were chosen. You were dead. You were uh, a sinner. You were apart from God. You were far away. You were an alien, uh, alienated from God's family. You, you were uh, without hope. You were without God. You were, and you were, you were, you were, but God. Remember that. But God, by His grace, it is by grace that you've been saved through the faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. There's nothing you can do for that faith. There's nothing you can do for that grace. There's nothing you can do for your salvation. God does the work. And it's not by works, he goes on to say. Look, at, look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. It is a gift. God gives it to you. He's, he gives it to you not because you deserve it, not because you've worked for it, not because you've paid X amount of monies for it, not because of anything else, solely by the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. You don't, you don't deserve it. No, no lo merece nadie. Pero la gracia de Dios se la da a usted. And that gift that God gives you, just like the gift of every other gift that you receive, you have to accept it, receive it, and work with it. And a lot of people just say, ah, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll continue to do my program. And when I'm ready, I'll open that gift. You know, when I'm up in heaven, oh, yeah, where's that gift? Okay, it's still under the tree. You know, blow it. I can still unwrap it, right, God? I says, I gave you that gift a long time ago, and you did not respond. God will hold you responsible. Even though he has chosen and he's elected and he's adopted, he still will hold you accountable. And we talked about that when we talked about predestination and how predestination works. God chooses from the beginning of the foundation of the world those who are going to be saved. And yet, if those that don't receive Jesus Christ and don't respond, he holds them accountable. And the question is, well, how does that happen? If God is going to choose some to, to, for eternal life, how does he hold those that he didn't choose responsible? And, and the, the, the theological term that I gave you that I've learned after all these years is this. I don't know. How those two work, but they do. He's chose some, you're held responsible for your, for your response. And the Bible teaches it clearly. And everywhere that the Bible says that you are chosen, you are adopted, you have been elected from the foundations of the world, you were dead, God woke you up. He also has a verse that says he's going to hold you responsible. He holds everyone responsible for their decision, their choice, their desire or not desire. So am I one of the elect? Well, what is your heart leaning to? Is it leaning upward to God? Is it toward God? Do you desire God? Do you desire to please Him? Or are you pleasing yourself, the world? And, and, and so... 
Paul has laid this out. He says, you know, here's, here's where you were. Here's what you've done. It is by grace that you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And I describe grace like this. And I've said this over and over again. And I'm going to continue to say it until you, you, we all get it and we understand that it is undeserved. You cannot work for it. You cannot pay for it. You cannot go to church enough for it. God gives it to you. Judgment is deserved. I deserve judgment. Mercy is not necessarily deserved, but sometimes God gives mercy and he doesn't give you what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is I deserve judgment. I deserve eternal damnation. I deserve total separation from God because I violated God's holy law and I've offended a holy God. And when I offend a holy God just once, judgment comes and judgment is eternal damnation. People say, well, I'm not that bad. Well, have you ever told a lie? He says, well, yeah. Well, how many lies do you have to tell before you become a liar? Well, I guess just one. Have you ever murdered anyone? Oh, yeah. Okay, I haven't done that one, I know. Well, you know, the Bible says that when you hate your brother, you've actually murdered him. How many times do you have to murder someone before you become a murderer? Well, just once. Have you ever... Uh, committed adultery or, or fornication or, or any of that. It was, no, no I, I'm good. I don't do those things. Well, the Bible says that anytime you think about doing something with another person, then that is adultery. Have you ever done that? He says, well, yeah, I guess. Well, here's the problem. Beloved, we are liars. We are murderers. We are adulterers. And with that resume, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. I have, you have, we all have, Offended a holy God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. For no one can stand before God. No one seeks after God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. This is why we need a Savior. And Paul just lays it out. And, and, and here's justice. I'm driving down the freeway at 80 miles an hour and a policeman pulls me over and he gives me a ticket. That is justice. Justice has been served. Now I got to go to court, pay the fine and, and get rid of it. I'm doing the same, same amount of speed. The same cop pulls me over. Instead of giving me a ticket, he says, you know what? You deserve a ticket, but I'm going to show you mercy and let you go. Just don't do it again. Yes, officer. How many of you guys have done that? <laughs> Never again, officer. As soon as he's out the way, there I go again. Right? Mercy doesn't work too well. It does, well, for some it does. But here's what grace is. That police officer pulls you over and he says, you know, Mr. Martinez, you've been speeding. And instead of showing you, giving you justice, you deserve this ticket. Uh, and instead of just not giving you a ticket, I'm going to give you the fine of the ticket of $350. Not that I know how much a ticket costs. I'm just throwing out a figure out there. Anyways, and he gives you $350. What's this for? Because I'm, I'm graceful. My grace to you. That is what God has done. Not that we deserved it. Not that, not that we don't deserve it. And, but it's because we don't deserve it. God gives us grace. And Paul goes on to chapter 3. Uh, and he starts talking about how he has built this church from the foundations of the world. And made two, the Jew and the Greek. We don't understand the tension between those two races. And I guess we're starting to feel it all over again. And one race, the Jewish nation, they, they were from God, of God, because of God. Everything was theirs. Everybody else was just, you can come in and be a part of us, but you cannot be of us. 
Paul says, no, not only are they now a part of you because they follow the traditions and the customs and everything else, but now they are of us. They are one. We are one body. And this is what Paul is going to get ready to start explaining. We are one body. We are one, one body. There's a universal body and then there's the local body. And we all are part of that one body. And so what Paul has been building up on is exactly this. You know, you've been saved. You've been given these riches. You're, you're brought into the fold. You're brought into the Jewish nation. You are now part of God. And God is now your God. You don't have to be alienated anymore. And all of this is being shown so that, so that people can see more than the people, but the heavenlies, the angels, those that are looking upon this world, wondering how is God going to deal with this? You know, he made a perfect man and he sinned and now everybody's sinful. How's he going to deal with this? Oh, there's Jesus Christ. But he keeps saying he has one body, one purpose, one, one, one church. How is he going to make a church out of all these people that hate each other? And Paul says, well, when you commit your life to Christ, when you receive God's salvation and his grace, you become a part of that body. And the angels are looking on and they're looking upon what God is doing. And this is what he says here. As, he, as we talk about this in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 4, when, the, when you read this, chapter 3, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. At his, at it, it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. He keeps talking about this mystery. Nobody understood it. They didn't understand that Jews and Gentiles are going to be one. And then he goes on to say, uh, in God who created all things so that, and here it is, the purpose of the church, so that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, salvation, the church is not just for salvation, which is a big part of it. The church is not just so you can feel good, which is a big part of it. The church was designed to be one body so that he can show his manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom. It's like a diamond with all these different sides and colors and prisms and just everything that splashes out of these diamonds. And, and, and the angels are looking over and saying, oh, I get it now. All this time, they didn't know. They didn't understand what God was doing until he brought the two and made them one. And, and this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the very beginning, his eternal purpose was to create the two into one. And so Paul has already explained, these are the things that I want you to know. And so last week we talked about the prayer. The prayer that Paul prays, prayer for spiritual strength. And this was my prayer to you. And he says, you know, I'm praying that you be strengthened in the inner man. Be strengthened inside. Excuse me, inside. Uh, he says, that's, that's my prayer to you. I pray that Christ dwell in your hearts richly. Not, not just be inside, but to be feel at home. To, to, to know that all sin has been taken care of and taken away. 
And it's difficult to have sin in our life when we are focusing on Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons many of us come to church is to focus on him so that I don't have that sin in my life. The problem is that the moment I walk out of here, you know, there it is. Sin waiting for me outside the door. It's like we kind of put it out in the umbrella rack, <laughs> you know, got hung it up on a hat rack. And then, OK, well, I got to get that thing back and get, let's get going. When when your life is free of any of those entanglements, when your life is is, is done with <clears throat> another principle that I'm, you know, sharing with my kids, my grandkids is that, you know, you got to focus on God. And I taught them the Lord's Prayer, and I'm teaching them how to focus on God. You know, one of my grandkids, you know, well, actually a couple of them, they're, they're scared at night. They get, they get afraid. I says, and so it's because you're thinking on things that aren't even going to happen. And they tell me, well, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. What if this happens? What if that happens? Look, you're focusing on the negative. I didn't talk to them this way, but I'm sharing with you. Worry, stress, fear, it's because you're focusing on the negative. You're focusing on that which you think might happen. And all day long, you're focused and you're thinking and your mind is just, you know, going over and over the myriad possibilities that can happen. And then you, you wake up thinking this and with the headache and you can't sleep at night. You ha- your stomach is turned. You, you've got all these ailments, high blood pressure, sugar diabetes. You have all these things that are happening to you and it's worrying you out and it's stressing you out. And you say, you know, I, I'm so worried, sick. And that's exactly what's happening. Because you are worrying yourself into sickness. Did you know that anxiety and worry have a lot of uh, physiological problems to the body? You get headaches, insomnia. Some people can't sleep. Some people sleep too much. You get depressed. High blood pressure gives you intestinal problems, all kinds of different intestinal problems. You know, it's a matter of fact, it's it's being linked to a lot of emotional and and, and, uh, psychological problems as well. Because we're thinking and we're thinking and we're thinking. And beloved, we all kind of do that. This is what we learned last week. We all have, we're all kind of neurotic in a sense. We're all kind of, we, our minds are always going. At least the normal mind is always going. And this is why you can listen to me and think about, you know, are the Raiders winning today or are they losing? You know, I got to hurry up and get back to the house to watch this game. This is why your mind can do like 30, 40, 50 different things at, at one time thinking about different things. Now that I put the Raiders on your radar, I probably lost you now, right? <laughs> Cowboys? Uh-huh. But thinking and processing this information in your mind about things that could, should, would happen. You all day long, you go to bed with the same thing. And guess what happens? Nothing changes. Nothing happens. You know, nothing took place. You go to bed, you wake up the next morning. You think, man, I just worried about all that last night and yesterday. And now here it is again. And day after day after day, people are just bogged down with this heavy depression, this oppression, this cloud of sadness and and, and of woes and worries. And basically, you know, in a childlike way, you know, don't think on those things. You're saying, what else should I think about? Well, how about thinking about God? How do you do that, Grandpa? Well, just say a prayer. Oh, like what? Well, here, let me show you one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father who art in heaven, they say, Howard be your name. No, not not Howard, not Howard. You know, and so it's just a matter of getting them to shift their thinking. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, the same thing. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the way you think. This is why scripture is highly important. 
This is why emotionalism cannot drive you to walk in a worthy walk. Because emotionalism will only get you revved up for the moment. The, the half hour, hour, two hours that you're in church get you all in a frenzy and you walk out exhausted. Whew, that was good. That was good. Oh, praise Jesus. And boom, once again, there's the world. And emotionalism, you cannot think rational while you're emotional. This is why a lot of churches, they, they feed on this emotionalism. Because they know that as long as they can keep you emotionally driven, they can almost ask you to do anything. In our, in our circle of influence, which is small, as you can see, but still very powerful and effective, we work and focus on the Word. And I want to show you what the Word says. Because this is why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Not so that you can be happy. Didn't Jesus save me to be happy? No. Happiness has nothing to do with your holiness. As a matter of fact, holiness requires your life. It's a lifetime of servitude. Holiness requires you to be ready to serve, to give up your life. Anyone who comes after me, Jesus said, must take up his cross. First of all, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You think, whoa, that's kind of heavy. Yeah, very heavy. Jesus took his cross all the way up to Golgotha. And figuratively speaking, what Jesus Christ is saying, you do whatever it takes to follow Jesus Christ. Our problem is that we're so focused on the world. We're not working on the inner man, the inner strength, as I mentioned last week. We work on the outer strength. Everything that we do in this world is about our outer strength, our outer appeal, our outer appearance. We want people to look at us and see that that person's successful. Good haircut, nice makeup, nice dress, good suit, nice car, nice truck, nice motorcycle, whatever the case may be. Nice home, nice kids, everybody's in order. It all looks good on the outside. Paul wasn't concerned about the outside. Paul wasn't concerned about what he looked like. As a matter of fact, the Bible, well not the Bible, historians tell us that Paul was a short man, hunchback, had a hooked nose, baldied and bow-legged at the same time. He was an Ugly looking little man, you know, and crooked fingers. You got to follow Jesus Christ. And the way he talked, he had a really harsh voice, but he can capture people. People look at him and say, whoa, what are you doing? Let me talk to you about Jesus. And he would just go off on them and he would share with them. He wasn't concerned. Jesus wasn't concerned with his outer looks. He had no home. His sole possessions he carried on his body. And even that was taken away from him. When he was crucified on the cross. And so when we look at what Paul is sharing with us and how he is saying, you know, this, these, the, the work on your inner strength, the work on Christ dwelling inside of you, comprehend God's love and be filled with the fullness of God, then the power of God will be released. And, and, and beloved, if you weren't here last Sunday, I, I, I encourage you to get last Sunday's message because it, it'll show you how to have this, this type of, a, well, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this is a promise. And we, we focused on this verse last week. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that only Pastor Sal asks or think. Oh, no, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? Wait, let me do that again. That, that was the newly perverted version. Uh, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that only the spiritual leaders think. Oh, no, wait, it doesn't say that either. It says this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we Ask or think according to the power at work within us. This is a promise. You have the ability. 
You have this amazing power, these riches that are within you. And the way they are unleashed is if you, uh, you, you, you feed the inner man. You strengthen the inner man through God's word. You're just constantly taking it in and taking it and doing what it says. You do it by, by allowing Christ to dwell in your heart and, and get rid of sin so Christ can feel comfortable in your heart. You do this by comprehending God's like, Oh, you, beloved, if you just knew how much God loves you, the width, the height, the breadth, the length, the, the depthness, the vastness of God's love. If you just can comp- if you can grab that, it, it would change, it would transform your life. It would radically change your life if you can just understand God's love. And we can't. We haven't. Then you're filled to the fullness of God. This is what takes place. This promise is sometimes, you know, well, yeah, maybe for the more spiritual people, maybe for those that are probably a little bit more, you know, have been around for a long time. Excuse me here for just a moment. Maybe just for uh, those that, you know, are the very special people of God. No, this is for you. You have the ability to do far more than you can ever think or imagine or even comprehend things that you haven't even thought about. God wants to do through you. And you're thinking, man, I can't even get through the day, let alone things that I'm thinking about. And then he says he's going to do more than I think about. It can't be for me. Yes, it is, beloved. Yes, it is. See, Paul's already laid out the riches. He's already given us all that he has. And so in chapter 4, and you know, I'm not even going to get, I'm just going to get started on it. Because I really have to share this with you before I even can dive into the rest of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. Because what Paul has done, he says, okay, I got to teach you doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. This is what you are. This is who you are. This is what God has done. This is what Jesus Christ has done. This is, and this is how it gets done. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. He does this in almost every epistle that he writes. Half the book is doctrine. The rest of the book is duty. Half the book is, you know, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is who God is. This is who you are. And, and he's teaching, teaching, teaching. And then he goes in the theology of what life is supposed to be like. And, and, and we cannot know what it is that we are to do unless we first of all find out who we are. Let me say that again. We cannot know what it is that we, used, we need to do, our duty, our, our, our progress. How, how do I do this without having the directions, the doctrine, the, the simple lines laid out? I don't know how many of you guys have tried this. Most of us guys, we kind of do this. And I don't know, maybe some girls do as well. I, I, I had to stop doing this a long time ago. But, but I, I, get a, I get a crate, I get a box, I get a stu- something. My wife says, put it together. All right, I take it all apart, right? And I lay everything on. I just start screwing things in. And by the time you know it, I say, oh, man, I put that on backwards. I can turn it, take that over. Oh, man, it doesn't go that way either. And, and I'm, you know, and so my favorite model has always been, if at first you don't succeed, go to the garbage can and find the directions. Because it'll tell you there. And I come to find out that I missed one of the biggest pieces that should have been done from the beginning. And my wife gets frustrated with me. She does. Just read the directions. No, I know how to do this. I've done this before. You know, that's, this is why we don't shop at, at Ikea. Uh, you know, I just, I just can't follow directions that well. But that's the way a lot of people feel in their Christian life. I go to church, but nothing happens. What am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, they talk about being filled. And they talk about this. They talk about all this excitement and how God is blessing them and all these riches. And, you know, and I, I, I can't get nothing out of it. 
I, you know, I just, need, I just can't seem to somehow, you know, feel good about it. And beloved, it's because many pastors, and I've done this in the past as well, we, we fail to show this is who you are. This is who you are, and this is what God has made you to be. This is how you are saved. This is why you are saved. This is why the church is here. This is what the church is for. This is what's going to happen in, 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 in eternity. And then what Paul does, as he does here in chapter 4, he says, I, therefore. And we've already, I kind of jumped the gun on this. <laughs> I was supposed to go there first, therefore, then go back and show you what it, that word therefore was there for. He says, now that I've shared all this with you, all this doctrine, all this duty, all, 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 this, all this teaching, now you've got to do it. He says this very candidly. He says, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says, I, I urge you. That word there, parakaleo, I urge you. I, I beseech you. I, I, I entreat you. I beg you. Beloved, I, 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 as, as best as I know how, you got to see that you, you have been blessed and you've got all this eternity and you've got all this that God has done for you. Uh, I am now begging you. And, and, and if Paul could, you know, I could just imagine, because we looked at this in chapter 3, where he says, I bow my knee. You know, how that might have looked with the prisoner as a prisoner chained to a Roman guard, and he bows his knee, and the guard is like, okay, come on, Paul, how long are you going to be there? You know, this is getting kind of crazy. And he's bowing his knee, and he's praying, and he says, I, I urge you, I beg you to walk. Walk a walk that matches your talk. He says, you need to walk this worthy walk. Why? Well, because Jesus paid it all. The, the last song that we sang, you, you know, how could... The Son of God, how could God Himself send Jesus Christ to die for a wretched sinner like me? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a nobody. And God made a somebody out of me because of His Son Jesus Christ. He was condemned. And, and I have been given a crown. He was insulted. And I have been exalted. He was crucified. But now I stand with God and Jesus Christ because of what He's done. And, and so my life should be a reflection of what God has done for us and for me, each one of us. And I, like Paul, beg you to walk this walk. Today, you guys know what today is, right? Okay, I know what you're going to say. I know you're going to say it's Halloween, but <laughs> it's, it's actually a little bit more important than that. It's more than candies and ghosts and stuff of that, that nature. Tomorrow is what most Catholics call All Saints Day. Uh, right? All Saints Day is the day that they celebrate the dead. And, and uh, anyways, five, over 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther started a protest that exploded into a worldwide movement. At the time, Europe was living in the shadows of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Ch Roman Catholic Church, as I've said many times before, has been, it was the dominant only religion in the world. And so everybody just lived according to what the church said. And, and, and it was more like an empire than a church. In other words, they were the ones that put up kings and says, okay, you tell them what to do. We tell you what to do because, well, we're from God. And you tell everybody else to do it. And if you don't want to do that, then we'll take you down. So they would pick up kings and they would get rid of kings and they would dethrone them. And they used that dominance and that pressure to keep people in the darkness of super superstition. People didn't read their Bibles, kind of like today. They didn't read their Bibles, and they only listened to the voices that were out there, and the voices were telling them what to do. And it sounds pretty familiar. Martin Luther 
In his day, he says, you know, I just, I just can't understand this. Just like everybody had an opinion about the Bible, even though almost no one had actually read the Bible. Like so many of us, they were following the thoughts uh, and the, uh, the leaders and, and the shakers, the movers and the shakers of their own day to tell them what was in the Bible and whether or not to believe it. Luther was one of the few people actually reading the Bible, and what he found was earth-shattering. It rocked his world. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that people were sinful. As a matter of fact, even as a Catholic monk, Martin Luther hated God. He hated him. He says, how can you make us like this and then hold us accountable to this? And then we have to do all of this to try to please God. You know, why is that? Until he started to read the scriptures. He studied it and the, wor- and the world around him, and he began to make, and it began to make sense. God made sense. The significance of Jesus became clear to him. He discovered the answers to the deepest questions. How could evil be overcome? Specifically, how could his own evil be overcome and dealt with? Luther discovered that he couldn't do anything to fix the problem himself. He had to rely on the finished work of Christ alone. Luther had discovered a central truth. It changed his life and it changed the world. The Protestant Reformation, which is celebrated in many parts of Germany on October 31st, happened 500 years ago, 504 years ago actually, happened 504 years ago. And it happened not because he was trying to reform the church or excuse me, change the church, but he was trying to get everybody back on cue. And he was trying to get people to walk to what the Bible says, but people were more interested in the financial part of it. As a matter of fact, there was a man named Tetzel that we used to go around, and, and they were trying to, the Pope was trying to get the church and the people to build this St. Peter's uh, Basilia, and they needed more money. They ran out of money, so they would. And one of the questions that Luther asked in these 95 theses that he nailed on the church door on October 31st. The reason he did it on October 31st, not because it was Halloween. I don't know how they celebrated Halloween back there. But the reason he did it on October 31st, because November the 1st was All Saints Day, and everybody was going to come to church, and they would see, whoa, what's this mean? And they would read that they were being deceived. And the money that they were giving to build these cathedrals, Luther says, you know, the Pope is richer than most of the richest people. He's richer than Trump. And I don't even know who Trump is. He's richer than everybody in the world. Why doesn't he give his money to build these? Why is he building these buildings off the back of poor people? And of course, that didn't sit well with the establishment. And they went after him. They tried to kill him. They killed a lot of his friends. But what Martin Luther was trying to do was say, look, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It teaches what Jesus did. I don't have to work for it. And so the Protestant Reformation, which started over 500 years ago, today is the day that they celebrated to recognize that we are a change agent. And a lot of what was going on in that day is similar to today. A lot of people are just listening to voices. I have you bring out your Bibles. I give you verses to take home. I ask you to investigate. Somebody said to me this last week, you know, I go back and listen to the messages again because I, I, you know, I find out that I forget stuff or I've missed something. And, And we do this intentionally because we want you to know the Word of God. I want you to walk the walk worthy of the calling that you profess to own. I beg you to walk this walk. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And and, and walking has always been, you know, a lifestyle. Walking is usually not just, you know, walking to the park or walking to church or walking home. But it it always pictures, you always picture a person and his lifestyle and what he does. 
to be able to, to show that this is who I am. And it's unfortunate that a lot of so-called Christians really don't have that lifestyle. They may at church, you know, they may have the Bibles and the verses and everything else, but at home, one of the biggest reasons a lot of spiritual leaders, pastors, uh, their children, uh, they, they, they fall by the wayside is because, well, they see a lot of hypocrisy. The parents act one way in church and a different way at home and at work and at everywhere else. And it's, and it's hard to try to get the message across. And Paul is saying, I want you to walk this walk. I urge you, look, you've been blessed. You've been brought in. You've been chosen. You've been selected. You've been saved. You, but God's given you this grace. You don't deserve it, but he gave it to you anyways. Therefore, walk this walk. And what, what we're going to find out here as we go through this, we're going to see, no wonder I'm, I'm off. I have the wrong notes. No, I don't. They're down here. Uh, we're going to see, number one, a walk, a worthy walk is dependent on humility. That's number one. And I'm just going to touch on this this morning, and I'm going to come back next week, and we're going to just really hammer in on it. A worthy walk is dependent on humility. We had to go back and look at the doctrine. We had to go back and see what God has, has already laid out for us. We had to go back to see what Paul was trying to get across. We had to go back and, and look at all the blessings that we have. And so now that we're all blessed and now that we're all feeling good, wow, this is amazing. God has saved me and I'm just amazed. Now I got to get humbled. I got to come back to humility. Number one, a worthy walk is dependent on humility. A worthy walk is dependent on humility. He says, in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is something about unity. Unity is God's call for His church. Unity is what Jesus Christ died for. Unity is what Jesus Christ's kingdom is all about. When we become his citizens, we are to be united. Uniformity, not conformity, uniform, excuse me, conformity, not uniformity. Uniformity is everybody is a cookie cutter, looks exactly, dresses exactly, talks exactly. We're going to find out in this chapter that all of us are given different gifts, and we're all part of a, a body. And some are the hands, some are the feet, some are the... We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Paul talks about it more in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 as well. But, but he has standards. You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a believer, here are the standards of the believer. And God expects that. As a matter of fact, what Jesus Christ did, he says, you know, I, I, I put this together. I, I, I did this because I know that you need to grow in this grace. You need to grow in what God has is, is given you. And Jesus Christ, what he did is he even said, you know, I, I died for you. Uh, I, I put it together for you. I, I want you to be one. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, the book of John. In John 17, this is what is called the priestly prayer. John 17, the high priestly prayer. And what, what Jesus is doing here, this is right at the what they call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Lord's Table. They're having Passover that night before He is crucified, before He's arrested. And He's sharing with them what He wants them to know. 
He washes their feet. They share this meal. He, he initiates the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And he gives it to them. They share this meal together. The Passover is a meal that reminds the people of Israel of the way that God had saved them from Egypt. He said to them, many years prior to this, he says, I will send ten plagues. And these plagues hit. And every time the plagues hit, the king, Pharaoh, said, okay, you guys can go. Wait, you know what? I changed my mind. Our guys can do that. We, we can change water into wine. We can bring boils and gnats and frogs, and we can do all of that. And in the last plague, God says, okay, here's what I want you guys to do. Go out and find a one-year-old lamb. Find that lamb, and I want you to, it's got to be spotless. It's got to be clean. Can't have any defects. I want you to go ahead and, well, of course, you got to sacrifice. you got to cut it up, and you got to eat the whole thing. If you cannot eat the whole thing by yourself, a family of eight or ten, then bring another family with you. And so that night, you take the blood of that lamb, and you sprinkle the blood over the doorposts of your house. Because the last plague is going to be the angel of death. This angel of death is going to take the firstborn of everything on the land. Except for those with the blood that is sprinkled on their doorposts, the angel of death is going to pass over that house. This is where we get the word Passover meal. And so that has always been a tradition for the Jewish people. Jesus Christ, if you know anything about who he is, became our Passover lamb. He became the spotless lamb. He was the lamb that sits upon the throne. He is the slaughtered lamb in the book of Revelation. He is the lamb that opens up the seven seals. When somebody says, who can open up the seven seals? And behold, there was a lamb. Looked like it had been slaughtered. And he was the one that had authority to open up the seven seals. And every seal dispensed a a, a different plague onto the planet in the end time, these are the things that are going to take place. The Lamb of God. And so as they are celebrating this Passover meal, Jesus starts praying and he prays for his disciples and he starts praying to them or praying for them. And uh, let me see here. Let's go to um, let's go to verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. When we move on a little bit further to verse, um, verse, verse, well, let me go ahead and read the rest of it. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, through their word, that they may uh, all be one. What Jesus Christ started to pray for, all of us in verse 21, that they may be one. And if you have a, an outline or something in your, uh, some, a, pen, a pencil to be able to, to circle that, that they may be one. And what Jesus Christ started to say, he says, I want them to be one, just as you and I are one, Father. And in you, I in you and you in me, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. There's that word again. Even as you, as we are one, there's that word again. Circle it if you're able to. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. 
Jesus Christ, I want them to be one. I want them to strive to be one. I want this church to be one. Not a whole bunch of different churches. Not a whole bunch of different peoples and thoughts and ideas and religions. One. 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 We are to be one. And what Paul is getting getting here, he says, okay, here's how you do it. Number one, well, you've got to walk the walk. Walking the walk is dependent upon humility. Humility. Humility is not a word that most guys like. As a matter of fact, most people don't like them. We like the word pride. I'm so proud of my job. I'm so proud of the work I've done. I'm so proud of my family. I'm so proud of my children. I did this. I did this. I, 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 I. That's the same thing that Lucifer, the bright angel, said to God. I will ascend. I will do what I want. I will go wherever I want to go. I will be the one in charge. I, 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 I. He goes flying down into, from the heavens down to the earth. God had just picked them up and cast them to the earth. And says, no, he won't. He says, I'm God. The first sin in all creation was pride. And pride is the one thing that holds us back. Pride is the one thing that wants to put me above God. When I don't respond to God with His grace, I am basically saying, I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. When I need you, when I get to the pearly gates, then I'll call on you. Okay, Lord, you got me where you want me now. I'm, I'm yours, all yours. And He's going to look at you and He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't I go to church? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do miraculous works? And he says, you know, you are a worker of iniquity. Depart from me. Depart from me. And he will be cast where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Somebody once asked me, well, what if I don't have any teeth? Well, teeth will be provided. They will give you teeth just so you can gnash them. And I don't know if you get the picture, it's like, you know, this is, oh, this is painful, this hurts. You've, you've hurt your toe, you stubbed your toe, and the first thing you do is you gnash your teeth, Arr! you know, you, you kind of want to scream out. And that's for all eternity, beloved. That's for all eternity. And pride is the one thing that God hates. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, is what James tells us. He, he hates pride. Pride is such an ugly thing in the church. I mean, let alone in the world. You go to any benefit, any type of football, you know, baseball, uh, work, uh, you know, if they, they're always elevating people. You know, this guy did this and this guy did. They give themselves awards. And, and you know, it's no big deal. And, you know, and then we get mad because we didn't get one. How come I didn't get one? You know, I did good work. I just did as good work, as much as good work as that person. Pride is ugly. Look at, look at your first verse in Philippians 2.8. It says, And in being found in human form, what did Jesus Christ do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point where he gave himself on the cross and he died. And humility is, is foreign. It's a compound word. They, they, they didn't have that word in the Greek and in the Romans because humility just didn't make sense to the Greeks and the Romans. We're not going to be letting people tell us what to do. I'm not going to put myself any lower than what I am. I mean, you know, it's, no. And to them, it was, it was a word that just didn't make any sense. And the term was, was coined by Paul himself, which later on people started to use that word. But humility is the foundational virtue. We can't even begin to please God without humility. Just Jesus Christ had to humble himself. We too have to humble ourselves. Yet humility, here's the thing about humility. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday as we were driving. I says, you know what? I think I'm, I'm humble. 
I think I've come to a place of humbleness. She goes, yeah, right. <laughs> she knows me better than anybody else. See, that's the problem about humility. It's elusive. Once you think you've arrived, you've lost it. Because a humble person won't even recognize that he's humble. And so humility can only be observed by those that you're humbled to. Just like pride. Pride can only be observed by those you are pride and boastful to. That guy, and his pride stinks. As a matter of fact, that's what the Bible says. Humility, excuse me, pride stinks. Pride is, it hurts. Pride is the one thing that most people have when they are assaulted, insulted. Pride is the one thing that gets us mad. That's where we get our road rage. Somebody cut in front of me. Who do they think they are to cut in front of me? It's your pride. Somebody, somebody says something wrong to you. But why, why would they see something like that to me? It's your pride. Humility would just say, and Jesus Christ said, turn the other cheek. If somebody smacks you on the right cheek, you turn the other cheek. Now, this is interesting, about, by the way, this, this getting slapped on the right cheek. Because most people in the New Testament, they were right-handed, not left-handed. And the only way to get slapped on the right cheek is by a left-handed person. Does that make sense? Think about it. See, see, you cannot get slapped on the right cheek unless somebody used their left hand. And the only way that you would get slapped on the right cheek is if you were to get backhanded. And this is what you would do to a servant, to a slave. And Jesus Christ said, if anybody ever slaps you on the right cheek, basically was saying, you know, you become a servant, you become a slave, you just give them the other cheek. They can't do it left-handed. They can only do it right-handed. It's kind of hard doing it left-handed. Most people didn't know how. And, and the, the point is that we humble ourselves. The picture of humility is Jesus Christ. I told you we wouldn't get through this. The picture of humility is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he humbled himself. He humbled himself so much. The Bible says that he could have called, you know, 10,000 angels. He could have called all these angels to help him, to, to bring all the, you know, to help him get out of this mess. Yet the Bible says that while he hung on the cross, here's what he prayed. He said, Father... Instead of zapping them, instead of, you know, calling all these angels to get me out of here, instead of just demolishing this whole crowd, he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's true humility. My problem is somebody wrongs me. I want revenge. I want, a, I want recourse. Somebody's got to pay. The, uh, the day that our, our cars... Catalytic converter got taken. One of the first things I said, man, I feel bad for the person that did that. Why would you do that? Because that's God's car. <laughs> you know, we dedicated it to the Lord, and they just took, they just took the, the God's catalytic converter to, to I don't know what they're going to do with it. I come to find out later as I gone to the shops and everything else, and they're kind of working on it still. They, they, the one mechanic started laughing. <laughs> Remember? He started laughing. He goes, you know what? They took the wrong one. I go, what do you mean they took the wrong one? Yeah, that, that one that they took has no value to it whatsoever. <laughs> I go, well, it's still messed up my day. <laughs> my day is still messed up, you know, whether it was the right one or the wrong one. Here I am still, you know, with a broken car. You know, God takes care of the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm not saying that I've gotten there. I'm not saying that I'm there. I just, you know, again, the moment you think you got there, you've lost it. That's how humil humility is. But yet, before we can have this unity, in order to walk a worthy walk, humility is at the top. Paul says, with all humility, humble yourself. 
Humble yourself with all humility. Father in heaven, thank you once again. This is a tough one, Lord. I, I know that it's difficult to humble ourselves. We, we can't. Not on our own strength. We, we are surrounded by so many prideful and boastful people. We want to match up to what they have or what, what um, even more so, at least on our own will. And God, whenever somebody insults or defames us or, or talks bad about us, Lord, we, we want to we lash, lash out, at least on our strength. And Lord, we need your supernatural power to be humble in this world. The world's coming up against us, Lord. It's coming up against us and it's knocking believers down. And we need to humble ourselves. And it's difficult to do in a world like today. So I pray, Lord, that as we learn how to walk this walk, that you teach us how to be humble. It's the foundational virtue. We can't do all the others without being humble. A church filled with humble people will have unity. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about somebody else. And if that somebody else is thinking about me, Lord, we have humility in the making. And I don't want what, what's best for me. I want what's best for them. And they want what's best for me, not best for themselves. And Father, that's how we keep unity in the church. So I pray, Lord, that you take this message that we're about to get into and help us. Put it into practice. We need to walk the talk. And help us to understand that, Lord. So Father, dismiss us now from this place, never from your presence, as we continue on through this life, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. All right. We'll be up here for a moment. If you'd like to come up and have a word of prayer. Thank you for being here, by the way.